Good morning. It's a pleasure and a privilege to get to preach on Easter Sunday morning. It is the greatest day in the Christian calendar and the high point of our year. As we celebrate all that we've talked about this morning, the Christian hope, the victory of God, and in particular the resurrection of Jesus. We do believe that the real human being, Jesus Christ, came in history 2,000 years ago, really lived a human life, uh, taught in Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, in Israel, gathered a small group of followers and was really killed, scourged and then crucified by the Romans. His death confirmed by professional killers and the flow of blood and water from the gash in his side. He was then buried in a sealed and guarded tomb. But we claim this Jesus was resurrected back to life again, having been dead. He lived, he died, and he lived again in history. This is the cornerstone of our faith and the moment that we celebrate this morning. But we can only really, truly appreciate all that this means if we're willing to take a, a bit of time to consider death. Death, something that we rarely uh, spend much time thinking and talking about. So I'm going to help us to do that this morning, to think a little on death in a service about the resurrection. Uh, but because it's not something we often talk about, I, may, I imagine that one or two of you may uh, already feel a little bit uncomfortable with that prospect. You may perhaps think that I am being insensitive to ask us to dwell on death together. The Welsh poet uh, Dylan Thomas wrote his most famous poem about death. I wonder if you've heard it. Uh, and the attitude towards death that he recommends. I'm going to read you the first verse of the poem. It may ring, ring a bell. You may have heard it before. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Anyone heard that before? If you've seen the film, I think, is it Gravity? It's all, it's all over the film Gravity. That's why I first came across it famous poem. It seems that Dylan wrote this in advance of his father's death and for Thomas death was an abhorrence to rage against. Inspired his most powerful poetry but I think that his response is quite rare. Not many of us respond to death like Dylan Thomas. I think much more common is our tendency to uh, totally avoid thinking about it altogether rather than have a response. You may, uh, you may like to ask yourself, if I just pause for a moment, you may like to ask yourself, when was the last time that you sat down and had a long, hard think about death? When was the last time? Because it has been suggested that there are two things which man cannot look at with a steady gaze. One is the sun, the other is death. We simply avoid setting our minds on the prospect. If you come here regularly, you'll have heard me talk many times uh, about our distraction culture, how um, we fill every moment either doing something, watching something, or listening to something. 
And uh, so often the reason is that we can't bear uh, to face reality. And death is one of the realities, I think, that we struggle to face, that we would distract ourselves from paying attention to. And this is so much the case that uh, when death does happen or does touch our experience, uh, nevertheless, we still try and repress what's going on. I want to give you a few examples. I think we see this in the language we use. Uh, we don't often say, do we, that uh, so-and-so has died. We tend to say that they've passed away or that they're no longer with us or we find a, a workaround, don't we? Uh, it used to be the case that the way we socially marked a death was a funeral uh, where the focus of the funeral was the person who had died and grieving for the loss. That's still quite common, but there's an increasingly growing tend towards having celebrations instead. Then if you come across it, I've heard several people say to me that when they die, they don't want a funeral, they want a party instead. I wonder if you've had any, I wonder if you've said that, or anyone has said that to you. I think I understand the sort of sentiment involved, but I'm afraid I struggle to see this uh, as a good development. Because I think what's really going on is we so can't bear focusing on the death that even when it happens, we'd rather think about life instead. It's denial, really. Um, football stadiums, another sign in football stadiums. Uh, often when a notable person would die related to football, football stadiums across the country would have a minute of silence. Well, it's becoming more and more common to have a minute of applause instead. Have you noticed that? Again, I think culture uh, unable to face death. And you may think that these are insignificant examples, but I'm trying to give you a picture of a shift, uh, of, a, of a trajectory that we're on, a mindset that will not contemplate death. And this is really ironic, really, because death is one of the very few things that will happen to us all. Taxes is the other one, isn't it? Taxes and death. There's not much that's truly common human experience, but death is. And it's not just common, but is hugely significant. That's what differentiates it from taxes, perhaps. It's the end of this life, and depending on your beliefs, it may be the end of all life. And not only this, but it could happen at any time. I mean, to be blunt with you, you could be hit by a bus tomorrow. None of us knows when death will come. There's a famous story about this that I want to, uh, that I want to tell you. Again, you may know this already because it's well known. But once in Baghdad, there was a servant who was sent by his master to go and buy some food from the market. So he went, but he returned shortly afterwards. His face was as white as a sheet. Master, he said, I was in the marketplace buying the food when I was jostled by a woman. So I turned round. And there was death. Death made a threatening gesture at me, so I ran back here as fast as I could. Please, would you lend me your horse so I can flee to Samara? Death will not find me there. His master agreed, so the servant fled and went to Samara. A little later in the day, the master returned to the marketplace, and he too saw death in the marketplace. And he spoke to death and said, Why did you make a threatening gesture at my servant this morning? Death replied, that wasn't a threatening gesture, that was a reaction of surprise. For I saw your servant here in Baghdad this morning, but I have an appointment with him in Samara this evening. 
We can flee death, but none of us knows when we will die. And despite this reality, very few of us have uh, thought through reasonable thoughts about death and life after death. On the whole, I think this is one area of life where we tend to avoid logical thinking uh, rather than really sitting down and considering the possibilities. Uh, we tend to just go for sort of wishful thinking, really, a kind of fingers crossed fuzzy hope that everything will work out in the end. But it's not like there aren't options available to us. I mean, after all, every human culture through history has had some sort of rituals and beliefs about death um, that we may want to examine. Uh, or to come at it from another angle, there's really only a handful of options in the end. I mean, there's either life after death or there isn't. You could boil it down to two. Uh, if there is life after death, it's either a personal life where we continue to exist as persons or it's not. You know, There's only a very limited number of possibilities. But we seem very reluctant to pay any attention to them and think them through. And I do wonder how many other of the significant parts of our life we pay so little attention to. It is odd, is it not, that we spend more time thinking about our diet than our death. But despite our unwillingness to think consciously about it, unconsciously our behavior can't help but be affected by it. Whether we're aware of it or not. Um, you know, if we reflect, we can see how much of our uh, culture is driven by a fear of death. Uh, in fact, many of our fears and phobias are actually a fear of death, but slightly disguised. So fear of flying. You're not really afraid of flying, are you? You're afraid of the plane stopping flying. That's what you're afraid of. You, we're not really afraid of heights. We're afraid of falling from them. And many of our fears can actually be boiled down to a fear of death. I, I wonder what you fear. I'm willing to bet that a significant number of them could be boiled down to a fear of death. In Job, a book of the Bible called Job, death is termed the king of terrors, which I think is quite appropriate. We spend much of our time and our money as a culture investing in avoiding risk. There are benefits to the health and safety movements, but it's also a sign of the times. Uh, think how much money we invest in trying to slow down the aging process. So while I was researching uh, for my, my talk this morning, I had a look at some of the plastic surgery statistics. Uh, and I was really taken aback how many uh, over 70-year-olds are having cosmetic plastic surgery. Over 70, a significant percentage of uh, plastic surgery, cosmetic plastic surgery is by over 70-year-olds. You know, the desperate attempt to cling on to youth when age is undeniably marching on. And why we are very obsessed as well by healthcare, aren't we? This is the sort of other example I want to give you. Um, 20 years ago in the UK, we spent £730 per person per year on healthcare. Okay, 20 years ago, £730 per person. Last year, we spent over £2,300 per person per year. That's a sort of threefold increase in two decades. And I'm not trying to make any political points with that, but rather uh, just a sort of cultural analysis point, really. I look at where our energy and our money is going. Stave off death at all costs. So I think... 
that is um, our approach to death that we live in today. Uh, ignore it, primarily. Ignore it. Don't think about it. Hold on to a sort of fuzzy, vague hope it will be okay. And in the meantime, just put it off for as long as possible. And then in the unfortunate event that it does happen, just try and move on as quickly as we can. And the question I'm asking this morning is, is this a sufficient response to death? Is that a sufficient response? At least Dylan Thomas acknowledges the reality of death. At least he reacts to it in some way. You know, maybe if more of us contemplated it, we would react like Dylan Thomas. Or perhaps, if our lives have been touched by the hope of Jesus, we may react like the Apostle Paul. Here's Paul's response to the prospect of death, which he wrote in his letter to the Philippians. He says this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I can't decide. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And he goes on. To live is Christ, to die for Paul is gain. This is a man who can hold a steady gaze at death and can have no fear. In fact, the New Testament as a whole, the collection of books and letters that make up the second part of the Bible, all the authors seem to hold a steady gaze at death. One of the themes of Jesus' teaching that he teaches on again and again is being ready for death and the judgment that follows. In many of the letters, Christians are encouraged to shape their lives around the reality of death and life beyond it. Almost everything they said to each other was put in that context, you know. So we get familiar with it, though. If you read through, it's remarkable how much of what they said to each other was put in the context of the end is coming, be ready. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, writes Paul, we are to be pitied more than all men. That's how focused he was on death and what lies beyond. If it's for this life only, then... We're to be bitter more than all men. Why were the first Christians able to have such confidence staring death in the face? Why did they no longer fear it? Why were they so confident that they would be given life again on the other side of death? And I guess in the next minute or two, I'm particularly speaking to those of you who may not hold a Christian faith this morning. Because I think this demands a historical explanation quite apart from anything else. This is what I mean. You know, historically, you have to think about this. Why would a small group of Jews in the first century suddenly become so fixated on the idea of resurrection. Other Jewish works around the same time uh, do mention the hope of the resurrection sort of occasionally and sporadically, but nowhere near the intensity and frequency of what you see in the New Testament. How on earth do you explain that? I don't think it's intellectually sufficient to just imagine that a random group of people suddenly, for no reason, reshape their whole theology and their life around the idea of the resurrection. I think that's illogical. There has to be a cause. And I guess, for me, the only rational conclusion is that something had happened in their experience. Some event had occurred 
they'd put the resurrection front and centre of their thinking. And what kind of experience could explain what we see in the early church? What could explain the fact that this group of people reshaped their theology, their ethics, their religion, their interpretation of Judaism, their actions, their letters, their churches, their lives, all focused on the death and resurrection. Well, obviously I'm standing here because I think the only rational answer is what they claimed, that Jesus himself had died and had rose again in history and in their experience. This is how Peter put it in Acts when he explained the Christian faith to a Gentile who was looking for God. He said, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. The subtext is, go and check it out if you want to. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to those of us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Subtext, he was really alive again. It wasn't just a vision. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The Christian hope is what it is because of Jesus. It was his resurrection that smashed the worldview of these group of first century Jews. They just did not know what to do with what they had experienced. It forced them to reconsider everything and they began to work out the implications of what had happened. You see, as good Jews, they knew that sin causes death, that death is in the end the punishment for sin. And so if Jesus had overcome death, if he had shown that there was life beyond death, they started to realize that he has also managed to deal with sin. Death has been swallowed up in victory, wrote Paul. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where is your sting? He was handed over to death for our sins, but raised for our justification. No wonder, really, that this event reshaped their world shape the way they live and again I want to read to you from Paul's letter to the Philippians because he writes movingly of how this event has reshaped the way he lives he wrote this for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as rubbish that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I hope you see how his life was utterly defined by the hope of the resurrection. I forget what's behind, he said. All gone. 
I press forward to what is ahead. I want to share in his sufferings, he says, so that I may also share in the life of the resurrection. A certain hope. And this really is the song of the Christian saints throughout the ages. Um, some of you may know the story of Jim Elliot, a missionary. I want to tell you a bit about him. He, he was a Christian missionary in the early 20th century to the Warani tribe of Ecuador, attempting to bring to them the message of Jesus that we proclaim today. And the work was dangerous. Did, did you catch on the news a year or two ago about a man who had been shot by an unreached tribe trying to get on the island? And if you picked it up, they'd shot him on the way. Reaching unreached peoples is always incredibly dangerous. Uh, and that's exactly what they were doing. And at the age of 29, Jim Elliot and his co-workers were betrayed by the one tribesman that they had befriended, uh, who lied about their intentions to the rest of the tribe, and the tribe massacred them. But shortly before he had gone to his death, he had written this in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'll read it again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Again here we have a man who has grasped the hope of the gospel. who has looked at death with a steady gaze. But perhaps even more remarkable was his wife. She and Jim had only been married less than three years. They had a 10-month-old daughter when he was killed. And after the massacre, she and the other wives of the missionaries uh, decided to stay and continue to work among the Hurani tribe. And two years later, they were allowed to go and live with the tribe. Uh, a tribeswoman called Dayuma became a Christian, helped Jim's wife and the other missionaries to translate the New Testament into their language and eventually the tribe, many in the tribe came to faith and the tribe was transformed. I wonder what sort of confidence in the face of death gives that group of young women the ability to stay after their husbands have been killed. Two other quotes of Jim Elliot's which are less famous but uh, I think help you understand the man are these. He said, uh, I seek not a long life but a full one like you, Jesus. And when the time comes to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. Be ready for death, essentially, is what he was saying. Paul said, you know, to remind us of, of Paul again, he, he was ready to live as Christ and to die as gain. He was ready. And so we celebrate the Christian hope today. I just think, actually, I, you know, also I think of the Sri Lankan martyrs today. You, you know, this happened last year and the year before, that churches in um, sort of countries where Christians are persecuted were bombed on Easter Day. So if you live in a country like that, you know that going to church on Easter Day could be the last time you go to church. But they go to celebrate and testify to the power of God and the resurrection of Jesus. You don't go to church on Easter Sunday morning in countries like that unless you have looked at death in the face and thought it's worth it. So today we celebrate that hope, but it's only such a great hope because of the reality of death. Uh, so I, I guess what I want to say is, is that we all need to take a good hard look at death, really. 
That's what I want to say. And we need to ask the question, are we ready? Are we ready? There is this myth that does the rounds in um, that people who are really focused on heaven and the resurrection and eternal life are, uh, have you heard the phrase, so heavenly minded they're of no earthly use? It's a total myth because really it's those who are, are most focused on the hope of the resurrection that do most on earth for the kingdom of God. Because we've got nothing to lose. We can embrace suffering and pain and death, danger, risk, opposition, because we know our hope's secure. Simon Gillibode is another Christian missionary, not yet dead, who serves in Burundi. And he uh, often says this. He says, you are invincible until Jesus calls you home. And I think if we get that, then we live radically, don't we? So the last thing I want to say uh, before I finish again is for those this morning who are not yet following Jesus. And, um, and I guess it's just to call out another myth, the myth that says, well, we can't really know what happens when we die, so there's no point thinking about it. We'll get there one day and then we'll work it out. Well, I think you've picked up from what I've said this morning that I consider that irrational. The Christian hope is just not that vague. It's not that fuzzy. It's intellectually robust. It's historically secure. It's not a random set of beliefs. Either Jesus really lived, really died, and really rose again, or he didn't. And you can look into that. I suggest you do. If you want to, and you want help, then I can guarantee you my time and my books. But I suggest you do, because one day, we all die. And isn't it a matter of basic logic and reasonableness that we should spend some time thinking about that? To ignore it and to keep living as if death will never come is like living in an imaginary world. So I'm going to finish by reading Paul's words again. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's how I want to live. I want to live being able to look death in the eye with my hope secure in Jesus, knowing that I will die, but I will rise again to inherit all that is good about this life made perfect. All things made new, back as they were meant to be, and I rest secure in this hope, knowing that my life belongs to Jesus, and he's already done that.